Good morning and welcome. Today's gospel is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since you have contended at, this, at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. We've been in a series called Live Fearless, and we've been looking at what it means to live fearless. We started with this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And even this verse that Patty read says, I, I want you to stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And so we've been looking at various parts of Philippians chapter 4, and what it means to live fearless, what it means to stand firm in the Lord. We started with this idea about being anxious for nothing, and how God often cares more about how we go through something than actually what we go through, because sometimes the storms of life are not even our fault, but he's there in the midst of them, and they can be our classroom. We can ask God for what we need, we can thank God for what he's done, and we can worship him for who he is. And we also looked at this idea of holding the right thoughts, that if we're going to live fearless, we need to hold on to the right thoughts and let go of the thoughts that are not healthy ones, because we can't always control the thoughts we have, but we can control the thoughts we hold. And we can take those thoughts captive that try to capture us. So we talked about, like, uh, I was talking to somebody at um, Jacob's mission trip recap, and like, oh, I've been having lots of puppy dog thoughts. And I'm like, oh, yeah, me too. They just run away and all kinds of bad stuff. We also talked about this idea of the report we believe, that sometimes since our life moves in the direction of our strongest thoughts, the, the thoughts that we have about the news we receive, that's the report, The report we believe is actually more important than the news we receive. We hold on to those thoughts about what is true and right and lovely and pure and excellent and admirable. And all these are on our website if you're like, ooh, that was good, I missed that one. The the second to last one was this idea of opening our eyes, that God actually has a hidden strength for us and limitless supply if we can see it. And all of these courageous people, these fearless people in Scripture could see that, but it took opening their eyes. They had to often look through their weakness and their need to see that strength and that supply. And so today we come to the conclusion of this series with this idea that is in chapter 4. It's this idea that I can't shake because... um, because we all have relationships around us, and it's this idea of the challenges in relationships, the conflicts that we come to. I mean, think about some of the biggest band breakups in history. Right? You want to interpret that one? What was that? That was that? Anyone? Anybody got any ideas of the biggest band breakups? The Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel. 
Oh, man, I tell you what. We'll have karaoke after. We won't. We should. Man, that's a new activity. Puppy duck thoughts. You know, okay, so that's it? All right, well, I almost wanted to talk about the Beatles because they do have a pretty good breakup story, but there's lots of rumors around that one. And so then I found these guys named the Everly Brothers. Anybody heard of the Everly Brothers? I mean, you might not have. They did start in 1951, but they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 86 and into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2001. And that's pretty impressive to be across both genres. So these two guys are brothers, and so just imagine spending all of your time with your sibling. I mean, not only your creative collaborator, but your business partner. And after you've been on a long tour and you're just like, oh, I just can't wait to spend the holidays at home, you go to the Thanksgiving table and across the table is your brother. And when you fight, your mom calls and like, you guys need to apologize to each other. I don't know if that actually happened, but I bet it would. So they held it together for 20 years, actually over 20 years, until 1973 when they were playing a show in Hollywood and Don kept screwing up the lyrics because he was intoxicated. Uh-huh. So Phil lost it and smashed a guitar over his head. I wanted to find a YouTube on that, but I couldn't. The only time the brothers spoke, and then he stormed off, and that was the end of the concert. And the only time the brothers spoke in the next 10 years was at their father's funeral. They did do a... A few years later, they did a nostalgia tour. They showed up at their music awards. Except for a brief tour in 2005, they really haven't spoken to each other since. Now, they might not be the band that you thought of. Obviously, they weren't. But think about relationships. You know, even the meet and greet question that we talked about, these, these silly arguments that we get in. I mean, because often these are the people that we are in conflict with are people we love, people we work with, people we walk with, that we've laughed with, with we cried with. So the emotions can tend to run high. And, and at least for me, um, I care about the other person, but I also care about what, where I'm at. And so this idea of living in harmony is actually quite a bit, quite challenging. So maybe you've heard this phrase, love difficult people, you're one of them. But Paul is in the midst of this letter uh, that's almost all positive in the whole thing. He writes, as he's coming to this climax and this close, he calls out two church leader ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. Their names mean uh, prosperous journey and happy chance or good luck. So they kind of sound similar. And we don't know a lot about them. We just know that they are called out. And the reason I think they're leaders is because women in Macedonia, Macedonia is where Philippi is, it's in the southeast, very southeast corner of Europe. It's, it's east and north of most of Greece. But the point is, peop, uh, women in Greece, not super high standing. Women in Macedonia, exceptional status. Women could hold property. They could hold positions of power. Uh, there are monuments that are built to uh, notable women in Macedonia. And the historical records, even the men's names, actually follow the woman's last name. So I think they were actually leaders in the church. 
But just imagine being called out publicly in a church gathering. Now, we don't actually know why they were called out. Maybe it's because they were sisters. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure sisters, you know, sometimes fight, right? Um, maybe they were two women that were in the same church, and they both had strong opinions. Because I'm pretty sure that's happened before. Um, Maybe they were influential leaders of two different house churches. And even though they got along, the people that were in their churches were competing or comparing. I think that's plausible. Uh, It could be something crucial that they're disagreeing about. It could be something trivial. Now, Paul calls them faithful and fellow workers. And so it probably wasn't something that was essential to who Jesus is or what Jesus did. But... He calls attention to it, I think, because differences can so easily become divisive. I mean, do you know in you when something is just a difference and when it becomes divisive? Do you get like a tightness in your chest? Or you start caring more about being right than about hearing the other person? And if you know what happens in you, because I've, I've learned lots of people don't know, but if you've learned what, what happens in you, do you know what to do? See, what I think Paul is getting at is how we live in harmony in the midst of our differences or our disagreements or our conflicts. And I think what we do is, is also what he's calling them to do. I think the way that we live in harmony with people, even if we have differences, is we respond with the same mind as Christ. That's what Paul is saying to these women. He's saying, I plead with you, Odia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Which sounds like a nice church phrase. But to me, it means that you think about the person, the situation, and even each other the same way that Jesus would think about those things. See, Paul has talked to them about Jesus. He helped start the church there. And listen to how he thinks about all of them, including these two women, and how he wants them to think about each other. He says, my brothers and sisters. That's how he starts. Meaning, my, my family in Christ. Uh, then he says, I love you and I long for you. So, you know, those people that you don't just love, but you actually like? Sometimes I'll tell my kids, I love you. I don't like you right now. But he he actually looks forward to the next time he's going to see them. And he says, my joy and my crown. This isn't like a crown of a king or a queen that would rule. It's more of a gold medal, a victor's wreath. You're someone that I get joy and victory from. And then he calls them to stand firm, dear friends. These are a lot of positive affirmations, but then he says to them, you're my companions, you're my fellow workers. Uh, we've contended, we've, we've struggled over the gospel together. We've worked side by side about the message and the mission of Jesus. And, and above all that, your signatures and your citizenship is not just in earth, it's in heaven. See, I think sometimes when we get into fights or conflicts with people, we forget 
who, how the other person is seen by God and what their interests are and what they care about. Because we often look to the thing that we care about most. Most of the time, it's self-protection. Preserving ourselves. He's already written to them what it looks like um, to be of the mind of Christ. He said it in Philippians chapter 2. He said, don't be selfish or have vain conceit, but in humility, value others above yourselves. This is uh, second, or Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind or the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant and even made in human likeness and found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, I believe these two women are probably influential. I think that they're ambitious. They're, they could have been selfish or vain, but we don't get that sense. Maybe they were just trying to do what we're trying to do at Restoration, to partner with Jesus to transform communities. And when any imperfect humans work on the same team in the same direction, sometimes differences and disagreements come up. And so to respond with the mind of Christ is still to be ambitious, but not selfish. It's to be humble, meaning not arrogant, not pretentious, not treating people differently depending on what they can do for you, but caring about others above yourself, and actually considering their interests and maybe perspectives rather than just your own. But it's also to be, as one uh, author and leadership consultant put it, hungry, like hardworking, diligent, motivated. A person with the mind of Christ, I think, has passion and urgency to accomplish the work that God calls them to. And, and that's really sometimes hard for us in the Midwest because we don't want to rock the boat. But I think the most interesting part is this verse 3. And I ask you, my true companion, to help these women. Now, we have no idea. At least if, if someone figured it out, it's news to me. I, I scoured scholars and stuff. Who might the true companion be? Imagine you are sitting in church, you're hearing this letter from the person who helped start the church. He says, and I ask you, true companion, my true companion, help these women. Anybody want to guess? The audience? So just in general, anybody? Maybe Timothy. Timothy did partner with him. Could have been. Could have been the Holy Spirit. Sure. Sure. Anybody else? I think those potentially could be any of those answers. Maybe it's the person who delivered the letter. Some people think maybe Epaphroditus was the one who took the letter. Maybe it's him. Uh, I want to think the Holy Spirit. He's called a companion elsewhere. He's just not ever used in that language with Paul anywhere else. But what if it's anyone who sees themselves 
as a companion to either these women or to Paul or to the work of reconciliation or the work of making peace. If you think about what it means to make peace and then think about this idea of living in harmony and then think about where we live in the Midwest where you don't ever talk directly to people. <laughs> you know, a guy could, uh, if he wanted to solve that situation, you know, talk to so-and-so to talk to so-and-so to get back to that. I mean, we just, we never want to rock the boat. We don't want to upset others. I think in the Midwest, we struggle with being people pleasers and peacekeepers. But Jesus never, ever, at least I don't see, tried to please people. He was all about pleasing God. Even if his nature was God, he didn't use it to his advantage. He humbled himself, serving others, taking on the nature of a servant, and he did it to please God and accomplish God's will. He knew this meant giving his life because that was the only way to make peace between God and humans. So to have the mind of Christ means that we're thinking about pleasing God instead of pleasing people. It means caring for people. It means loving people. It means seeing people. But it doesn't mean pleasing them. I think it means making peace rather than keeping the peace. See, Paul tells other Jesus followers in Ephesus, in Ephesians 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And in Romans 12, he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So living in harmony is not about keeping the peace, it's about making the peace, even with our differences, in the midst of those differences. And one of the greatest places that Jesus talked about this was in Matthew 18, where he says, um, in a conversation about forgiveness and reconciliation, he says, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over. You've made peace. You've reconciled. Now, if they don't listen, bring two or three, and then so that every matter may be established by two or three witnesses. That's a very Jewish thing to say. They would all understand that. And what's implied, but not specifically written, is And if they listen to you, you've also won them back. You have peace. You've made peace. You've been reconciled. But if they still refuse to listen, then tell the church. And again, the semicolon is, if they listen, you've won them back. And if they still refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector, which just means someone that you show love to, that you show respect to, but you don't trust. Not like, I'm never going to look at you again. Because that's how Jesus interacted with the pagans and the tax collectors. So then he says, what still baffles my mind, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If two or three of you agree and ask for it, they will receive it. It will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Jesus is 
in our midst when we gather in his name. So when we are gathered in his name and we are disagreeing or we are fighting, Jesus is there. Uh, Or as my high school girlfriend's mom who really loved Jesus used to say, now remember, I'm not in the room, but Jesus is here. Kind of a different story, but, you know, puppy dog thoughts. I'm sure I'm going to pay for that one. So then Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother who sins against me or my sister? Up to seven times? Because, see, Jesus has just said, if you go privately, that's once. And then if you bring two or three, that's twice. And then if you go to the whole church, that's three times. Now, if you win them back after that time, He's, he's thinking, okay, that's three times. Do I have to keep doing it? How many times do I have to keep doing Because if I win them back after the first time or the second time, but then later they do it again, am I supposed to forgive them again? And if they ask for forgiveness and we reconcile, then am I supposed to do it again? And am I supposed to do it again up to seven times? If you've ever struggled with forgiveness and reconciliation, can I just... Can I just say, forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust are three related but distinct and often mutually exclusive steps in a process of healing. So if someone has sinned against you, you might be able to forgive them and not have relationship with them. Forgiveness just takes one. Reconciliation takes two. Trust is then earned based on repeated acts of reconciliation or making things right. That's what reconciliation means. But Jesus responds saying, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven, which is a whole other teaching in and of itself. But today, my point is, and I think Jesus' point is, it's not counting. It's what you're focused on. Are you focused on the number of times that you're forgiving or the number of times that they sinned against you? Or... If it's focused on something different, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he tells a story that, you know, would make a lot of sense to them, but might not make a lot of sense to us. But I think it's in the same vein as my story. So the kingdom of heaven is like a young man that we'll call Tyler. Tyler really likes this girl named Nikki. And so he gets up the courage and the fearlessness to ask her out, she says yes, and he really wants to impress her. So he finds the fanciest restaurant that he can drive to and get home before curfew, and it's Alberto's. It's a fancy Italian restaurant, and he picks her up. He, he, he dresses up. He, he probably wears some pants, kind of like I'm wearing right now, and she looks great. They're sitting across the table from each other, and you know her eyes are just dazzling. He's a little bit nervous, um, and so he scans the room. Not too many people are there. It's still kind of early. So he sees these very, very nice, but kind of glass-like looking vases, and he remembers he can juggle. I know. And so he goes over, and he grabs these, and he's like, uh, you just inspire me. I, I just want to show you like what you make my heart do or something. And he picks up these and he's juggling and a few minutes go by and he's doing it. And he looks down, glances at her and she is impressed. She's got a big smile on her face and then he looks down a little too long. 
And as soon as one comes down, if you really know how to juggle, you know that once your rhythm's broken, it's shattered all over the floor. And there's this gasp. And Nikki's like, those looked expensive. And the waiter rushes over. And Tyler's like, I'm so sorry. Those weren't expensive, were they? And the waiter, like, leans down, kind of looks over his nose, loud enough for several other tables to hear, like, China, Ming Dynasty, 13th century, over a million dollars each. Stay here. And so the waiter runs off, and, like, Tyler turns ghostly, ghostly white. And as the waiter comes back with, who's obviously Alberto, the owner of the restaurant, he just stops in his tracks and takes in the scene, and there's this busboy that's trying to pick up these crystal shards off the floor. And when Alberto gets there, Tyler jumps out of the booth and like grabs onto his designer shoes and falls on his knees. He's like, Mr. Alberto, sir, please, please, I am so sorry. Just be patient with me. I will, I will try and pay you back. I have a vintage comic book collection and, and a pretty good set of baseball cards. I might be able to get $1,000 for them. If you just hire me, if, you just, if I could just clean dishes or work in your restaurant, promise, I will pay it back. Alberto kind of looks down at him, not looks down at him, but sees him. And with this voice of compassion and command, he says, there's no way that you could ever repay this debt. So I won't ask you to. You're forgiven. I, I'm, I release you from the debt. In fact, uh, your meal tonight is, is on the house. It's my treat. And everyone in the restaurant stares. They start giving a standing ovation to Alberto. And Tyler's like, I, I don't know what to say. To which Nikki hits him in the shoulder and says, say thank you. So he does. About 20 minutes later, I mean, and Tyler's feeling pretty good right now because he had about enough money to order salad and breadsticks, you know, the unlimited kind that sometimes they have at different restaurants, and so that he could afford to buy Nikki's food. And so now they're both having chicken parmesan, and they are living it up. They are loving this. 20 minutes in, the restaurant's packed now, and they're just digging in, and the waiter's coming by swiftly and gracefully, except somebody pushes out their chair and hits them right in the kneecaps. And he trips, and is his uh, tray goes flying and these two cups of coffee go swirling in the air and you can kind of just see it in slow motion and they land right in Tyler's lap. And he jumps up and he screams, not because it's so steaming hot, but just because it's so wet. All across his lap, dark, rich coffee. And the waiter's like, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, just... Let me, let me get a towel. I, I, those, I, I, I know coffee stains are really hard. Let me, let me pay for those to get cleaned. Let me pay. Just, it, I might have enough tips tonight. If I don't, in my paycheck, in two weeks, I will, pay, I will pay to have them replaced. 
And Tyler doesn't even let him finish. And he grabs him by the collar and his bow tie. And he's like, you idiot! I got these at the Gap for $40. I can't pay for these. And he starts shaking him. And Nikki's like, stop, stop, stop. And the restaurant's like in gasp. And nobody sees someone else run out and grab Alberto. And it seemed like what should have been a shorter amount of time or like what took forever, but really faster than it felt. Alberto comes running back with a policeman next to him. And they stop, and he's like, what's going on here? And Tyler says, thank goodness you brought someone. This idiot just spilled coffee all over my pants, and he needs to be fired and locked up. And Alberto grabs the police officer's arm and goes, he's right. Somebody needs to be locked up. And then he takes his hand off the police officer and points to Tyler and says, officer, this man broke three of my priceless vases. He owes me a comic book collection and his baseball cards, and I want him locked up until he pays me back every cent. And as Tyler is handcuffed and dragged away, everyone in the restaurant again stood and cheered for Alberto. Now that wasn't the story that Jesus told. But I think the story that he told in his time is of the same spirit and evokes the same emotion. And what Paul is urging these two church ladies to do is the same thing that Jesus is urging his followers to do in Matthew 18. It's a story of forgiveness. It's a story of reconciliation. It's a story of mercy. Because Jesus ends his story with this. The king called the man in, the Tyler in, and said, you evil servant, I forgave this tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? See, as much as we want to have the mind of Christ when we're in a conflict... I don't think we can do it in our own strength and our own willpower. I think the only way that we can continually respond with the mind of Christ is to receive the radical forgiveness of Christ. That's the way that we can live in harmony over and over, whether we're in the same church, whether we're in the same small group, whether we're in the same city or the same world. We have to forgive and we have to forgive fearlessly. That doesn't mean we jump to trust right away, but it does mean we understand what Christ did for each one of us. And we keep that in our mind. Because the distance between how much we fall short of God's standard, how much we sin against God, is like trying to measure the miles across the Atlantic Ocean. And and because of tectonic shifting, it keeps getting wider, by the way. And in comparison, the distance between our sin and another human's is like measuring inches across a rain puddle. I know it's snowing, but it's going to be spring soon. And we keep measuring the distance across rain puddles. And we keep grabbing each other's shirt collars and saying, pay back what you owe. Why? I mean, does Tyler somehow believe that 
that he still has to pay this back? Does the servant in Jesus' story somehow believe that when he says your sins or your debt is forgiven, what he's really saying is, I'll give you more time to make you pay it back? I think some of us walk around thinking that God isn't saying your sins are forgiven. God is saying, I'm giving you more time to work it off, to pay it back. So if you're really athletic or really strong, and God says, you have unlimited chances to jump across the Atlantic Ocean, does that give you hope and joy or fear and despair? Because you know you're never going to be able to do it. But some of us just keep trying, we just keep trying, we just keep trying, we just keep trying, and then we wonder, like the people that, that are like this, because we all have them in our life, we wonder why, why they can't show mercy or, or why they get so upset about such little things. It's because they're exhausted from trying and trying and trying. Or they're always worried that that knock, that door, that call is the person that's finally coming to collect. When in actuality, it's been all forgiven. All free. We don't have to jump across anymore. So why would we waste time measuring the distance across the puddle? It's not that the, the offense doesn't and didn't matter. It's just that we shouldn't focus on it. Because maybe the fear that you have right now of forgiving someone else is actually rooted in this deeper fear that you don't think that God has or will forgive you. So when you hear your sins are forgiven, because Jesus says it over and over and over. Do you actually believe it? And if I'm honest, there are days where that is hard to believe for me. If God really knows my heart, then he knows that sometimes it's just selfish or sinful or wicked. When we receive the radical forgiveness of Jesus, there is a peace that comes over us because it cost everything for Christ and he willingly gave it. He knew that we couldn't pass, make that distance and so he jumped across. He lived the perfect life. He died the atoning, the sacrificial death and that's the way that we are restored with God and we're restored with each other. It's a peace that comes all through our hearts. Colossians 3 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as members of one body you are called to peace. That gives us the, the strength and that gives us the unity, that gives us the ability to live out this unity, to live out the patience, to live out the forgiveness, to live out the mercy, and to be people who continually make peace. We don't have to agree on everything, but we are called to respond in the same mind as Christ. We are called to see each other as family, as humans that are created in the image of God, deeply loved by him, caring that he cares about, that we have a future together. Jesus says in John 1, or 1 John, that perfect love drives out fear. It's the perfect love of Christ that when we receive his forgiveness, we actually receive a perfect love and that allows us to forgive 
and love others without fear. That's what it means to live loved. So as the band comes up, just think about a relationship in your life right now that is strained. Or even someone that's just aggravating you or annoying you. And if you think, if you have somebody, if the Holy Spirit's just brought something or someone to mind, think about how the issue compares to the mercy that you receive from Christ, the forgiveness that we receive in Christ. How does that filter, how does that impact, how does that color the situation? What would change in that situation? What would change in you and what would change in the other person if you looked at it through the mind of Christ and the radical forgiveness that he offers each and every one of us? Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray right now that whatever is your words would penetrate our minds and our hearts. That it would change, God, how we see and how we hear. God, would you forgive me and, and maybe us when we're measuring the, the, the inches across the rain puddles of the sins against each other rather than considering the miles and miles and miles that you forgive. Jesus, you made a way for us to be with our Heavenly Father. And it was a peace that is so perfect that it made a way for us to be right with each other and even have peace in ourselves. God, so first, thank you for, for forgiving that debt. And God, I pray that we would receive it. I pray that especially the people here that are doubting that or thinking that forgiveness means I just have more time to repay God, that you would change our mind in that. That we would see and live loved, that you forgave that debt. That it would give us the strength and the fearlessness to have unity, to make peace. And to love each other. Speak to us, God. Thank you. Thank you that you made a way love you. We trust you. We believe in you. We know that your way is good and right and true. Help us with our unbelief.